That's okay. Okay, so ladies, it's wonderful to be back. We have this Tuesday day class going on for around 15 years. And what normally worked was a little bit less halacha, a little bit more inspiration, a little bit more neshama. What we are experimenting right now was just an experiment. Let's do this, let's say, for two or three weeks. If it doesn't work, it's absolutely okay. Let me just share a little bit of a background of what we're doing, of why we're taking a risk. It might, it might be amazing, or it might be, for some people, technical, or maybe even boring. Depends how you look at it. Okay? In the halachic world, which is very much similar to any other lahavdil judicial legal system. Some people love learning law. Some people don't have any feeling for, for it because it can be experienced as something very technical, something very nuanced. And people have enough technical in their lives and many people associate Torah with light, with enlightenment, with inspiration. Truth is the Torah has everything in it. Torah has everything in it. And we're going we're gonna to see if a halachic class will work over here. The, unique, the uniqueness of this halachic class, it, it was created a couple of years ago. You have people that love learning the Talmud, which is the base of all Jewish law. But the Talmud was compiled in a very, very unusual way. There was nothing in the world like the Talmud because it mixes everything on purpose. There's some law, and when you're losing the student, it throws a story in, and then out of the left field, it makes a statement which makes absolutely no sense. So you begin to, it wakes you up, like what's going on over here? And then you have this commentator and that commentator. It's a whole different type of world. Most people, when they approach Jewish law, they correct, correctfully so, they are referring to the bottom line, like a Shulchan Aruch, which is the book that was uh, compiled by by Rabbi Yosef Cairo around 500 years ago and his contemporary Rav Moshe Yisrael Lishter Amos, Fardem Ashkenazim, maybe you go back to the Rambam, you go into uh, the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, the Mishnah Berura, and it's very black and white. You do this here, you do that over there. Some people love it, some people don't love it, which is fine. This type of halachic class has the following goal. It shows the participants how the law came to be from the Talmud. And it's really very interesting. I mean, for me, I love this, I love this. It's like a history. It's, 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 it's not just a history, it's not just about the history, it's mainly for someone, we're gonna, it begins, we're gonna begin the class by asking four questions, which are always questions that have two sides to it. So it engages everyone. Maybe like this, maybe like that. Then we're going to learn a piece of the Shulchan Aruch. And I, if you want to, you don't have to, but you can follow it along. And then we're going to go back to the Talmud. We're going to read a piece of the Talmud. We're going to point out how the Talmud has in it an inherent contradiction, which it does. Three general ways of approaching it. We're not making this up. This is how Rashi learns it and how the Rambam learns it. And it's all, it's technical, but it's not. It's just showing everyone how there were different interpretations in the Talmud to reconcile a problem, and all of that results in a bottom line different halacha, or a different opinion in the halacha. So it's not just a halacha class, but it's halacha, 
and showing everyone how we got from the Talmud from the beginning all the way to the end. That's the structure of the class. Now, the end of the day, it's a halachic class. I will definitely try to add more um, insight. I'll do my best to add some words of Hasidus, maybe to get less technical. Um, the Rebbe emphasized, it's not that the Rebbe began with that, but we are Chabad Hasidim, the importance of women learning Torah. Um, I think that as time goes on, in the girls' schools over here, they'll be teaching this the same way because there is a certain group of people that love it. On the other hand, there are a certain group of people that don't enjoy it. And the same thing is with the guys. Just the guys never had an option. You're in yeshiva. This is what it is. So again, this is, I'm going to honor and respect you guys, the people that are here. Let's go a week or two. If it's good, it's good. If it's boring, I won't be insulted. It's just fine. Then we'll, we'll move on to something else. Okay. So this is how I'm going to open up. Every week, if we're going to go through with this, this is prepared. This is prepared. It's, it's with a lot of, a lot of uh, a lot, many scholars put a lot of work to come to this. I want to begin asking you guys four questions. And these are practical questions. You can look at it, big deal, but it's a big deal. But prior to the questions, <coughs> the topic will be about the halachic status of a synagogue. Really, the word synagogue a word in English, um, in the original, there isn't a word for synagogue. You have a base hakneses, bet hakneset. The word kneset means to gather, but that refers halachically to a environment that's exclusively designated for prayer. Whoever went to Yerushalayim at HaKadosh and went into the great the grand synagogue of Yerushalayim, the great synagogue, that's a base hakneses. I would even say that here, just as an example, you're going to Yik, the new Yik. So they have the sanctuary and you have the benches built in. In other words, that room was designated for prayer. There are many other things that happened there, but it's even difficult to learn there. It's easy for someone to give a speech, but learning, and let me clarify, learning means interaction, by Yidin. Learning means, doesn't have to be Chavruta, but it has to be a group where one makes a comment and the other person reads. So you have to have people facing each other, right? A sanctuary is not even set up to allow that. Everyone is facing Yerushalayim. People are not even facing each other, which, which makes conversation difficult, which makes Torah study difficult. It makes davening great. So there is a Beis HaKnesses, which, has, which, which is one thing. Sanctuary, maybe that's the meaning of a synagogue. Then you have something called the Beis HaMedrish. Beis HaMedrash means a, a room that's designated for learning and davening. Has another halachic status. More learning than davening. It doesn't have to be that way, but it means that it's made, I would say, a shtibel. A typical Hasidic shtibel, even if they call it a shul, the fact is, is that Hasidim, it, it is very important for us, for everyone, but less for us, that you wake up, you come to shul, and you learn Hasidis, and, 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 and then you fabreng, in other words, it's a place in which we connect to God not only through halachic davening, then there is a third thing, which I will call a multi-purpose room. As an example, from our shul, Chabad Sola. In other words, when you have a community center that has limited space, where from the outset you make a room 
And anything that's needed for the community will be done in that room. When you have to daven, it's going to daven. When you have to learn, you learn. When you have to make a meal, make a meal. If you, someone wants to rent that location to make a bar mitzvah, it was lechatechila made for that. That's not a Beis HaKnesses, that's not a Beis HaMedrish, that's a multi-purpose room. And we're going to account to each and every one as we go through, if we're going to go through all this. Okay, so this is going to be the, the status, the importance of having a Beis HaKnesses. And this series, which basically, if we're going to go through with it, will take up a half a year. Every series is a half a year. We're going to learn about many laws of prayer. Now, being that I definitely don't want to jump into only technical, I think no one will enjoy it. At least let's try to make a transition. So at least I want to open up with something that's not part of this curriculum, but just to point out the underlines over here. There is, there, is a, there is a duality to Yiddishkeit that we have to acknowledge, which is extremely important. Extremely important. A duality almost like opposites. Opposites. There is, let's say, ruchnius, spirituality. The, the soul's need to connect to God. To, to be connected to something greater than all this. That's part of Yiddishkeit. And then there is the halachic part of Yiddishkeit, which is almost the opposite. Almost the opposite, maybe even the opposite. You have to do this, you have to do that. Let's bring it down to davening, the, the paradox, the contradiction of davening. If davening means to connect to God, any emotion, emotions cannot be turned on like a switch. Legislating emotions is a is a state, is a paradox. It doesn't work. I can be told do this or don't do that. I might not like it, but I understand what that means. Eat matzah, don't eat chametz. I like it. I don't like it. I get that. The moment you're speaking about feelings, and you tell a person this is what you should feel every morning from seven to a quarter to eight, you're gonna feel connected to God. When you think about it, you'll laugh. And that's also connected to location. See, location at first glance. Some people, by nature, are creatures of habit. Some people, if they merited to have a very, let's say, lofty spiritual experience in a certain place, and when they'll go back to that place, they are already a step closer of having that experience, which is a good thing. Like you go back, you remember, ooh, I, I remember that experience here, it's easier to get it. Some people are not wired that way. Some people, repetition becomes monotonous, monotonous becomes choking for many people. And if they're trying to engage with the ruach, you lost it. You have to change it up, you have to go here, you have to go there. The structure, the religious part, not the spiritual part of davening, just to be aware, like any other part of Yiddishkeit, is always at odds, always, with the ruchniyistika part of davening. You can look at me like that, but I exactly like that. Sounds weird. I know. First of all, there could be exceptional people, or if you were lucky, if someone here was lucky, that they had a good role model, and they already experienced the tam of Ruchni is in their tefillah, then what I'm saying is not true for them. 
But if you think about the concept, where do you think it's easier to connect to God? Out in nature? Or in a dingy little room where 10 people are squeezed in together? That doesn't have good air conditioning. Where, where, do you think, where, where would you connect better to God? Now, I, oh, like a shul can be beautiful. I mean, know that. But as we'll learn through this, there are certain halachas of a basic which gives it <coughs> precedence as a place of prayer beyond any other place in halacha, whether no one is going to ask you, okay, what works better for you? Such an option is not given in Orthodox Judaism. No. I don't care what works better. No one asks you. God says, you go here at this time and you talk to me. You see the irony of that? It doesn't work, right? It's nonsensical. So I just want to say, this is a tension that we have to get used to. Now, many people, their solution is to say, yeah, that the whole, the whole uh, location and the text of the Siddur, but I'm going to speak someone else's words. I'm going to speak from my heart someone else's words. God needs to hear me saying their words. God already hears their words from them. Right? That makes a lot of sense. But that's not what we do. I am reading every day someone else's words. And I'm making an effort to own them. Why don't you make up your own words? Or why didn't you tell God, God, today I have nothing to tell you. Wouldn't that be more emis connecting to God? Oh God, if you want, I'll read you his poem. If you want to connect to your fellow, right? You want to connect to your spouse and read someone else's poem that they wrote for their spouse. Don't do that. It will be clear and it's not going to work, right? No, and why does it work with God? I'm just, I'm just, I'm not resolving the problem. I just, it's important to, to be aware of it. That's why also a halachic class is almost not, not inspiring. I'll do my best to put inspiration in it. So I want, I, want you, I want you to answer these four questions. During COVID, the fact is, for health reasons, a phenomenon that probably always existed, but never anything near nowadays, you have backyard minyan. Yeah. Right? When we were told that it's dangerous to be indoors, initially, no, no public prayer, no tzibur, then safer environment, safer meaning, outdoors. Almost no shul had enough outdoor space to accommodate. By the way, we were very fortunate what we had. So what became here is, is that a black minion, a neighborhood minion, and it's very, it's very gishmak. It's very gishmak, dafke because it's not formal, and because many homes here are outdoors, like you hear, you hear the birds chirping, and you're next to trees. Some people, many people, they, they feel connected to God and nature. But then when you're davening, I mean, halacha of davening, when you are not supposed to stand in front of the window and daven, uh, that's, that's part of the problem. So here's my simple question. If you live in a neighborhood like here, where you have two options, you have an option of going to a backyard minion or even an option of going to a synagogue. Halachically, what does the halacha say? Huh? Yeah, I, I asked. But when you concentrate on your room altogether, and you feel more closeness to Hashem? That you're going outside and seeing... Let me say what you're saying. Let me say what, what I think you're trying to say. Okay. 
that maybe the answer would be, it depends on the individual. Prayer means connecting. So the, the, the answer would be, okay, let me ask you, where do you feel more connected to God? Would that answer make sense? Like that answer to me would make sense. What we'll discover is that the halacha doesn't give you such an answer. Because Jewish is, is being in a community and if everybody does what they want... Not because of that. Not what they want. And also because you have to connect to God on his term, not on oh, yours. Okay. So, okay, so that's already a chassidish, a good insight. But before we get there, so just to be aware, as we will see, that there is some power in a place that's designated for davening, Beis or in a place that's designated for davening and learning, or even in a place that isn't only designated for that, but it is de facto used a lot for that. There are halachas, many halachas as, what are we allowed to do, let's say, in Sola? Not anything we want, even though it's multi-purpose. It's not free for all. In a backyard, you can do many more things at the right time. In other words, there's a concept of someplace having a greater level of Kedusha, and most of us, even people that are very spiritual, will not feel that. You have to be a tzaddik type of person. But since the Torah says there is more Kedusha there, it's better. That's something that we have to wrap our rounds ahead. It's not so simple. To daven in a place of more Kedusha, right? It's better to live in Israel than to live Chutzlaretz. Why? Because there's more Kedusha there. And many people, many people love Israel. Beautiful. Many people are not comfortable, whether the, the culture, whether the people, whether the tension, whatever. And, and there is in halacha this objective, no, this place is holier. No one asked you, it doesn't have to be worded that way, but that's what basically you're, we're being told. It's not about how you feel. It's, it's about, let's hear what God feels. And God, that's the way Hasidim would word it, God would appreciate hearing my voice when I go to shul, he likes it more. God likes it more than him hearing my voice when I'm in a backyard minion. I definitely would add to this, and we're going to see how we, how we got it. We cannot make these things up. This is something that the trader writes, and we'll see again. We'll begin with the Shulchan Aruch, and then we'll go from the Gemara all the way to it. I do want to add that even when you have such a halacha, which you have, which you have, there is still room for exceptions. Very important, and especially with the younger generation, and especially with people that struggle with certain eras of Yiddishkeit. Even halacha is not like, I would say, halavai a Jew wants to daven. In other words, the whole question is already with someone that's a couple of steps ahead. What happens if you deal with a person, which is a phenomenon we have to acknowledge. You can come from a religious home, you got a Jewish education, you went to what you think is the best Jewish schools, and you're not davening. You're not davening because it doesn't talk to you because something in the way you, we were educated and davening was off. But the fact is that person is not davening so that you have to have the common sense that if they have a person who never ever enjoyed davening and therefore they don't have the discipline of doing what they don't like. Right. So therefore the fact is is that they don't daven every day whether it's a man, whether it's a woman and then you notice as a friend or as someone who's coming with halachic knowledge that that person the backyard minion, they daven there. They daven there. Be careful with this. This is not to be taken 
black and white. This is a halachic concept. So there's a balance to everything that davening in a Beisachnesis by default has a advantage and therefore in the book it's going to say go to a Beisachnesis even though the backyard minion is beautiful and the setting etc because it's not a place designated for prayer. Yes? You're talking about a person who's mamish not going to a shul? Yes. Or you t- because there's also the, the, the person who goes and everything is empty. It's rote. So I would say, say I'm, I don't, I'm not afraid to be recorded. So I would, add, I would consider that person also a person who maybe, as an exception, not a blanket statement, should be told to daven in a backyard minion. Because, wrote, because wrote, if you have seichel, wrote means that person in 10 years won't be doing it or his kids won't be doing it. Wrote does not last forever. Wrote is like a death sentence. It's like when a person is in hospice. Are they living? They can be living. But everyone knows that in six months they're not going to be here. That's what wrote Yiddishkeit is. And we all know this. Now, in the ideal world, if you are already doing the right thing, let's figure out how to get the life in the shul. I know that. I know that. But I'm saying it's... I'm, I'm going to say this a lot in halachic classes because the downside of only learning halacha without acknowledging that davening is kavana and davening is the oibishter is that halavai yadavan. Halavai yadavan. That's what I say. That's the reality that I know. I know how many people, just parenthetically, again, this is being recorded, when I grew up, and that ever wanted for Lubavitcher people to take their tefillin with them. And wherever you go, like, don't be ashamed and go on the airplane and harass people for right or wrong, do it nicely, and get people to put on tefillin. This was something that was never done amongst religious people. Today, when, when I go now to a wedding, and before the chuppah, you take your bag of tefillin, you have no idea how many people with beards didn't put on tefillin that day. Shocking fact. With Yamuklech, ooh, I forgot. Why? Because Yiddishkeit wrote does not last. And by many people today, it's amazing. They cannot be wearing a yarmulke. They can be keeping a, a one little mitzvah and they're growing. They're connected to God. The next year they're going to be keeping more and you just, you don't know that. And one guy is on the way down. And if someone is on the way down, then a lot of seichel is needed. And when there's a lack of seichel, the lack of seichel is part of the problem. Coming back to this, number two. Next question. Bechlal. There is no minion in the shul. There is no minion in the shul. Person comes back 1 a.m. in the morning from a wedding. And they realize, oops, I didn't daven mitiv. Should they daven at home or go daven in the shul? And one isn't the other. We're going to see that the concept of there being kedusha in a shul is such that even if there is no minion... Theoretically, daven in a shul. Wow. It's the fact that it's a place designated for, which means you can't do this there ever. We'll see what the this is. You can't do that there ever. Is a raya that it's not only holy when there's a minion. It's a makrim shal kedusha. It's like Israel. No matter what, it's a holy place. It's holy, independent of what people are doing. And in the context of prayer, it's ideal to pray in a holy place, from God's perspective. That's a good way of wording it. Because Hashem, so to say, is more present there. Even though really, Hashem is present everywhere. Two other, two other questions. Now, the question 
has to be predicated on a certain amount of knowledge. And that is, is that on Shabbos we're not allowed to run. Run. Running? I'm not talking about exercise. I'm talking about running. You mean in a hurry kind of way? You cannot be in a hurry. Even if you are in a hurry, you cannot externalize your hurry on Shabbos. Shabbos is a day of rest. Rest and hurry are opposites. Even though by the technical letter of the law, resting doesn't mean to be resting. Resting means not to violate the 39 prohibited labors. But there's a Pasuk in Yeshayo. No, no, that speaks about rest. And the Pasuk says that God wants from us to refrain from doing mundane activity, from speaking the types of words that we would speak during the week. The Pasuk writes, we should refrain from the way we walk during the week. How do you walk during the week? In LA, everyone is always relaxed, which is a beautiful thing. But the way the people walk in New York, whether you have a job or not, you're, you're busy, you're, more, you're moving. And that, the, the Yeshua says, no, Shabbos, take it easy. The question is, if you're walking to shul, you will see every now and then that you're walking with someone who's very Haredi, and like a black before they come to shul, they're going to take off. But there's always thinking about being in the Zerizus. Okay, very good. So we're going to see about the Kedusha of the Beit Knesset is so powerful that the virtue of being Zoriz, not to daven, because the davening is starting 9.30. You're there 9.15. It means if you're going to run for the last block or not, you're going to make it on time. The concept of running to the shul in itself is a halachic virtue. 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 On Shabbos. All of this is just to underline the koyach and the kedusha and the importance of a place that's designated for davening slash davening and learning. So you are allowed to run to Shabbos. It's a mitzvah. On Shabbos. Huh? I don't think it's a modest thing to do. I mean, and to I, go, like, go to Shabbos. It's a very good question. And I would say like this. The, the obligation that men have, that obligation is not on the woman, but the mitzvah part, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, in the balance of. There is a balance of. It means if you have a shul, that de facto, that when a person goes there, many people are schmoozing the whole time, and you're going to end up not davening that much. And you don't need that social life. And you are, every case is a case. Theoretically, yes. Absolutely, there's a, there's a power of the shul that our prayers are heard, that men and women, when we daven b'tzibur, meaning if there is a halachic tzibur, which means there's a minion, as we'll get to, then whoever is davening with the tzibur has their, his or her prayers heard by God guaranteed more. It's not about your mood. It's a good example by a conversation. You have to be in it. You have to be singing words of praise. But you can sing someone's praise if they don't want to hear it from you, God forbid. Then you got yourself a wall. Maybe you know how to break through the wall, but wouldn't it be better if there isn't a wall? So there's a wall that God puts. God removes a wall when he walks into shul, when God walks into shul. So why not talk to God in the shul? There's one wall less. And the final halachic question, which is just to point out, the power of a Beisach Nessus, and that is, when you walk into Shul, which happens by us, 
and it's either very uh, hot or very cold, or some people have a minute that they can't daven without drinking coffee, are you allowed to take a cup of coffee with you into shul? Or to take the coffee from the coffee area and to put it down on your table with your sitter and drink your cup of coffee. While you're in the middle of davening. Wait, this is the third question. You said there are four questions. Yes. First question is davening in a minion and elder minion versus davening in a minion and shul. Question number two is regarding no minion, no minion, whether it's still advantageous to go to a shul. Third thing is regarding running to a shul on Shabbos. And the fourth is about the decorum of a shul. And a great example will be eating or drinking. Not eating a steak, having a cup of coffee, having a cup of water, and you're thirsty in the shul. Again, in the shul, I mean, I'm just bringing it to our shul. We have the back area. We only have one room. The back area, you, you can argue, is not part of, but can you take it and put it down on your table? Some people are already wired to do so. It's extremely difficult to even speak about this because they say, oh my God, let me live. <laughs> but at least let's talk about it. And let's see, there are laws about it. And again, I know that we have to figure out how to make exceptions and we can find exceptions. Sometimes you look for an exception if there's a reason. But that's, that's the topic for today. If you have um, a copy, I'm going to simply read, I would like to read the opening section of, of Shulchan Aruch. <clears throat> This, this is written by Rabbi Yosef Cairo. I do want to say that the Alter Rebbe wrote his own Shulchan Aruch <clears throat> a few hundred years later. And the section that the Alter Rebbe wrote was burnt. We don't have it. We don't know one has it. Or at least as far as we know, whoever made a copy, there is no section. Wow. Which is unbelievable how many tzaddikim gave their lives in writing important kibburim and it went to fire. Like, oh, like, like, like the tragedy of it is, is crazy. And it happened a few times by him and by many other tzaddikim. The al and how they dealt with it is like the biggest thing of inspiration. You have to really be a believer. This is his life's work. I know he did many life works, but writing a Shulchan Aruch takes it all. So did those become obsolete? Well, what the al wrote, we don't know never becomes obsolete because the Alter Rebbe actually organized the Shulchan Aruch exactly as the main Shulchan Aruch is organized. So it's divided into four sections and then you have chapters. So in Kuf Nun Aleph, the same topic in Aleph in the Shulchan Aruch is the same topic. However, being that many scholars were involved in this program, what does inevitably happen is that even though we, we, we got some of it burnt, most of it is burnt, but the Al-Tareb in other sections, every now and then uses as an example a law over here. So if you have someone that really knows it all, he'll tell you if the Al-Tareb anywhere in his halachic works wrote a halachic opinion. And there is a lot of it. So I want to begin reading like this. I'm reading from the Shulchan which means houses designated exclusively for prayer. Environments designated for learning and for davening. We cannot behave there. The word kalus roish is a word that is difficult to translate. It's vague. Thank God. At least vague is good from my perspective. Because I'm a community rabbi and I'm telling you my struggle. That you have a halacha that you can't change. Then you have the reality 
And many times you can see there's a conflict. You're going to impose and impose. You have to daven like this. You have to daven like that. You have to marry like this. You choke the person. They won't daven. In reality. Kalasurish means frivolous, lightheaded. I'm asking you what's lightheaded. I promise you, you're lightheaded and your neighbor's lightheaded is not the same lightheaded. Okay, but you can't be lightheaded. For example, Laughter. <clears throat> and by the way, there's laughter and there's laughter. There's a holy laughter. There's holy laughter. Kedusha laughter. Then there's laughter that's fine. It's not that bad. But it's not needed. Not in the synagogue. Certain conversations. You can't say hi to your friend. Yes, you could. You can't genuinely ask, how are you doing? But not, we're not even talking about while they're davening. I'm saying, bachlal, in that... That's exactly what I'm saying. So I, I'm just pointing out to you that there is an argument you can stretch, you can, you can coin, you can view this conversation in many different ways. But if it's sicha betela, not allowed to do that. Now here we go. You're not allowed to eat. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to put on makeup. You're not allowed to be metayel. means, I know many people when they learn, many people, I know people that really can sit and learn. They can, they can sit like for five hours and learn. But the body wasn't made to sit for five hours. And when they, when they get out of it, you know, they have to stretch. And they're just, they're just walking back and forth. You can't do that. You're looking at me. You mean by the letter of the law. Um, but we're learning the letter of the law. You can't be metayel. And you're not allowed to enter that environment because it's hot. Or if it's raining, plucking, raining. And you're, the shul, you're not allowed to enter the shul. You can enter the foyer. I'm talking about the shul because it's raining. However, here we go, exceptions. People that dedicate their lives to the pursuit of Torah knowledge, which also would mean they are spending many hours in that environment. And even if, you're not going to say, I'm the Talmud Chachem, but I'm the student of the Talmud Chachem. Again, people that are in that world, they, they opened up some more exception. They allow you to eat or to drink. When there's a pressing need. Whoever has coffee by us will claim it's a big doichak. Say that. But it's midoyak. Yeah, so you're not allowed to walk in if it's raining? You're not allowed to walk in there to protect. Yeah, you can only walk in there to pray. You can't walk in there to protect oh, yourself from. It happens to be raining and you're going to shul and you walk in and you say, I'm a chaya, nothing wrong with that. Okay. But if you would not have entered that environment and you are not praying in that environment and it's raining and you need shelter, shelter then you can't walk in there. What do people do de facto? They walk into shul and they sit down and they say a verse of Tehillim. So now they went in there to say a verse of Tehillim. Would, they, would have they entered without the rain? No, they wouldn't have. That's called the hetet. And then one more question. The word hitul? A, a certain type of a jest. Jokester. J- jokester. Okay, got it. How do you define a jokester? Yeah. So I have Hasidim that are happy people that everything, they have a humorous way of looking at life and it's very uplifting. I don't think it's this. It's some sort of unholy type of joking. 
exactly where the line is. I know for me, people know, I am, I'm very uncomfortable whenever we make, the few times we make an event to get a comedian. We did it once. I'm always uncomfortable. Like, to me, it always goes south. Like, there's no need for it. It, it never, I never saw, it used to be in Brazil when I was a kid, I knew Hasidic people that were batchanin and everything was so batamt. It was Ghanaian. Everything had a culture and, and, and it was beautiful, beautiful, uplifting. The message was better than a speech. But it was done in a way where people smiled. I haven't seen that for many, many years. Always becomes coarse, it just goes down. Like there's some line somewhere and don't do that. Then he writes like this, then he writes that some people say, no, the parentheses is the Ramah. The Ramah is the Ashkenazim. We follow the Ramah, we're more lenient. That some people hold that in a Beis HaMedrish, even if there's no pressing need, you can eat and drink, which is great. You're shaking your head because de facto, what difference does it make? For some people, it makes a difference. So what's the answer? Oh, it's machlekes. I'll fill with machlekes. So what, what do we do? If you're an Ashkenaz, if you're a Sephardi, you tell the guy, get, take the coffee off the table. Okay. The Ashkenazi can have it. <clears throat> okay. That's the beginning of all of our discrimination over here. <laughs> here, it's all legislated. What's it called? What's the have a name for it over here? It's uh, some people, right? institutionalized, institutionalized racism. That's the shots. <laughs> what? Right? It's, it's in the book. It's part of the law. Okay, I want to stop over here because it's getting late. I'm going a little slow. And I want to scoot down and I want to read a piece of Gemara. And this is going to be the main, I know for the guys, we're going to go more into technicality, but this is really awesome. I'm going to page, there's no page number, to number nine. If you can scoot down, let me read for you. This is what we learning in Shiva. This is the woman that like learning Gemara. This is what your sons will be learning. And you should appreciate the wisdom over here. This is a quote from the Gemara Megillah, page 28b. And there are really three statements. Even though, when you're reading over here, he broke it with in paragraphs. When you look in the Gemara, you have to be a little bit um, advanced to realize it's three different statements. In the Gemara, there's no periods, there's no commas. You have to realize what's going on. Statement number one, Amar Abbasi. Houses designated for prayer, which remember, if it's only for prayer, it's going to be more strict. The ones that were built in Babylonia, de facto, all of them, they were made with a stipulation. What was the stipulation? The Gemara doesn't even write. When they built it, they said that it won't only, only be used for prayer. It's like I said, like a multi-purpose. We are, we are from the outset saying, yeah, we're 99%. Or 90% or 20%, we would like to also use this for things other than for prayer. Now, why wouldn't everyone do that? Because a place that's designated only only for prayer has more kedusha. But it has to work for you. Some people say, Shkoyach, more kedusha. It doesn't work for me. I'm not that holy. I need to be in a place where I can drink a cup of coffee, where if I have a conversation for 10 minutes, I'm not disrespecting God's presence. It's too heavy for me. And in bubble, that's where they, and you don't even have to make it. It's automatically made that way. All, that means all of the synagogues out of Israel have a lesser amount of Kedusha, which would allow you to do something. The Gemara doesn't say what. What the Gemara says is, even though they made such a stipulation, to be frivolous, you can be. That's already beyond all borders. Can't make a, you know, Nishtaf Shabbos Geret. 
not Shabbos talking, like, that doesn't help you. Not Yom Kippur Gedet and have eat Yom Kippur. Now, you have to see how vague the Gemara leaves things on purpose. They were smart. They left things vague because they wanted for every individual to know how to apply it. As the time went on, people don't do good with vague. Tell me yes or no. Right, when you call a, pahal, a rabbi, everyone in the halachic world respects a rabbi that can answer yes or no. I sing the praises of Rabbi Shustam, and he's amazing. No, I don't know anyone like this. I'm talking about his halachic knowledge. He's a rav that says yes, no. And every other rav, with me included, they give you a whole story. You just tell me yes or no. Wait, wait one second. And then, because it's difficult to say yes or no. Now, some people actually don't want the yes or no. Okay, that's something else. But uh, he left it vague. Statement number two. The when aim, he wants to say no, he says, I don't know. Exactly. When he wants to say no to a person that he doesn't trust will listen to him, so it's better for them to hear I don't know than for, for them to hear no and them to violate. But let's go back over here. There ain't no Yosef. You cannot adorn yourself in it or you cannot use it for your own personal use. For that, Rava says, one second, the Chachamim, the Talmidehoin, now you see where the Shulchan Aruch got its words. The sages and their students are allowed to make their own benefit from it. He's not writing what? The Amar of Yeshua ben Levi, my Beit Rabbanon, Beis of the Rabbanon. When you ask a Talmudic student, where do you live? What address will he give you? The Shul, that's where he lives. In other words, if a person is spending 18 hours a day in that location, you gotta, you got to free it up a little bit. So they have more. What more? He doesn't want. Then, the third piece over here. You may not enter a Besaknesis, whether it is during the summer because of the heat, whether it is Bikshamim during the rain season because of the rain. You can't do that. Because that's what I mean. It's not your home. It's God's home. Says the Gemara, Kihod Ravina, like... And a story. Ravino is a name of one of the rabbis at the time of the Talmud. And Rav Ado Bar Masna, two Chachamim from the times of the Gemara. Havokaimu, they were standing, Vishu'alu And they began to ask Rav a halachic questions. That means they were speaking to him and learning. To who? To Rav. Rav was the big master. Which happens? So Rav, Rav, the outdoors. Rav is walking. So they are accustomed. They go over to him. They say, hey, we want to ask you a question. So two students are speaking to a teacher. And what happened was, Asa zilcha demitra, a plach in Yiddish. I don't know how you say this in English. A torrent of rain came down in Babylonia. Like it's in a tropical place. So it's not a little drizzle. What would you, I mean, like your body says, let me get, get me out of here. So what they did was, I know the Beit Knishta. They ran into the Beit Knishta. Beit Knishta is not Beit Saknesis. Beit Knishta is Beit Samedrish. Or maybe not. No, no, no. They went into the Besaknesis. They went into a, they were near a, a, a prayer, Besaknesis. And they ran in there. Now, they said, The reason why we went into the shul not, was not because of the rain. We entered there because to understand. Torah, you need to have a clear mind. So we didn't go in there because we didn't want to get wet. We went in there because we were learning. And the rain was disturbing our concentration. That's why we went in there. 
And this is very problematic. Why is this very problematic? Because the Gemara just said that Chachamim and their students, Mamish, can make more use of a shul. Can make more use of a shul. <clears throat> so why did they even need to have an excuse of them learning Torah? These are the Chachamim. These are people that Mamish, they were 18 hours a day they were learning. They were there the whole time. So why can they not enter the shul? Wet. Because of the rain. And, and, and it's funny that one story comes after, after the Gemara says that Talmud HaChachamim can, can make more personal use of a shul. Then you bring a story, you would think that the story is to back up the rule. The story is contradicting the rule. The story is showing you that even though it was really raining, they justified we only entered the shul because, because we need to have a clear mind. And we didn't have a clear mind. Which means if not for the clear mind, there would not be a lot. Why not their Talmud? No, that's why it's okay. But why did they even need that? After the Gemara says that's, that Talmidah Chachamim can make personal use of a shul, they should not have needed that. They should not have needed that. Now, I'm not going to get technical, technical over here, but, but what's amazing is that we're talking about big commentators. There's like a big machlekes, I don't understand it, and everyone understands this Gemara very different as to one approach. One approach, which is always important, that even though by the letter of the law they were allowed to use the shul for the personal use, the Gemara brought the story to say that when it comes to the Beis HaKnesses, aspire to go beyond the letter of the law. And I want you to know that not always do we aspire to go beyond the letter of the law. We have this general statement, a chassid should go beyond the letter of the law, but you don't normally have applications of it the fact that the Gemara is writing, that's one approach, is that they justify themselves because if not for the clarity of mind that they needed, they would not have entered. For them it was important here to go beyond the letter of the law because there's something so holy about a shul that you should go beyond the letter of the law. Like, like and this is all going to trickle down in halach. Like even if, if you want to know what to do. So you have to weigh, like I'm saying, it's all about weighing. The ruchnius or the legality of it. The Kedusha demands a reaction, even though we don't feel it, and beyond other halachas. In many other halachas, you don't have to go beyond the letter of the law. If you want, personal. Here, go beyond the letter of the law. If the Gemara says to go beyond the letter of the law, it's going to affect halach. That's one way of understanding it. There are many different ways of understanding it. And, and as we'll continue, we'll, we'll pick up next week, if you guys are okay with this. I think we should try it for a week or two, see how this goes. It's going to be a halacha class, but again, it's going to be learning halacha. Learning the source in the Gemara, pointing out, I just wanted to point out this, this problem with the Talmud. It doesn't flow. It appears that one step is like contradicting the other one. And then big Rashi and the Rambam and the Toysvis, you have to become familiar with the names. Each one explains it differently. And then the bottom line will be when you, when you give the Halacha and the Shulchan Aruch, you have to pick an interpretation of the Talmud. You cannot dance in all the weddings. And sometimes the Bachloikas between the Sfardim and Ashkenazim is because each one they have the right to listen to the three ways of learning the Gemara and to, and to say to themselves, which one resonates with me? And I'm going to pass them based on that. So the Ramah, for example, the Ramah says that they're allowed to enter. They're allowed to enter. They, can, they, they don't need doichak. They can drink without cup. Where does he get it from? Because he understood that Ravina was going beyond the letter of the law. 
But by the letter of the law, they were allowed to enter, even if there was no reason. Ah. See, so that already allows for more leniencies. There are other ways of learning the Gemara that will not allow you to come to this conclusion, which is the Mechab. Yechab? But the story, yes. they taught us more about the law than the law itself. Which means? Which means that because the Talmudah were allowed, and they didn't do it, and they were so careful, even though it was permissible, that means we shouldn't take it the Kaludat. For sure. So but, but, uh, but on the other hand, it also would mean, if that's the meaning of the Gemara, that by the letter of the law, they don't need that justification. Yes, yes. Oh, but I'm saying, when a person spends 10 years learning this, they get a sense of how the sages would have approached it. I'm saying, this is the big Rabbanim, when you're asking a Shiloh, how would they come to the conclusion? It's not only because they know more information, but because when you live in this world, and you're trying to understand how this one looked at it, and how that one looked at it, and then you begin to think like that. And you have a greater capacity, like even in this, you see, we're, we're saying opposite things from the same story. Exactly, This is happening for thousands of years. So if my goal will be to, let's say, how would the Rebbe view it? So I have to push it, sit and learn for 20 years, all of his Torah on the Gemara to see, would he react by saying, ah, you see that you should go beyond the letter of the law? Or no, 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 if you want to go beyond the letter of the law, but, but I, don't, I don't have to go beyond the letter. What, what did you learn from the story? You can take out opposites. So you have to figure that out to put it down black and white. You have to have a, you can call this, you have to begin to think the way they thought. It's not that we are against individuality, not at all. But we want to like really align ourselves to think the way they thought. And then at the end, you'll have to make your own judgment call. And this exists until today because even simple black and white, nothing is so black and white. In the Shulchan Aruch, you have two opinions, which means you have the right to a certain degree. Why would you choose A? Why would you choose B? It's good to have a certain way of approaching things. Not today I'm in the mood, tomorrow I'm not in the mood. That's too emotional. It's good to have a certain approach. Good. Good enough. To be, we'll try this again in a week or two, and then we'll make as our judgment. Not yet, not off. And we'd like to thank 